All right. Galatians 1, if you are able to stand with me, would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? We're looking at the first five verses this morning in Galatians 1. And here's what the Bible says. Paul, Galatians 1.1, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that's our title, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Father, thank you for the first handful of verses here in the book of Galatians, uh, a majestic book, a book all about the grace of God, the good news of the gospel. That salvation is not based upon clothing or diet or days of worship. Salvation is based upon a finished work at a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb and a risen Savior who is seated at the right hand of God, whoever lives to intercede for his people. It's not about uh, a building. It's not about uh, outward keeping of the law. Salvation is about regeneration. It's about being born again of the Holy Spirit. It's about the way that we live as a result of what's happened on the inside. It's not the outside then going to the inside, but the inside then impacting everything on the outside of one's life. It is good news that someone else paid the price, someone holy, majestic, innocent, blameless, someone who so loved us that he came to enter into our pain, died though he was perfectly innocent, took your wrath, demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have good news to embrace and good news to proclaim. And this morning, as we uh, launch into a study in this majestic book of Galatians, I pray that each of us will become a little bit more free in our salvation. Those who don't know you yet would be saved, Lord, and that you would receive the glory for all we do. This message is yours. May you lead it. And may you give us ears to hear what you want to say to us in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. If we can throw the map up there, uh, Sumi, for a moment, I want to just give you some facts about the book of Galatians. The author of Galatians is the Apostle Paul, as we saw in verse 1. The major themes of the book are defending and living the gospel of grace. So if you're a note taker, that's where we're headed for the whole book study Defending and Living the Gospel of Grace. The date of the book, most scholars believe, is around A.D. 48 and 49, somewhere in there. Jesus died around 30 to 32 A.D., so you're talking about just about maybe 15 to 17 years after the events of the Passion of the Christ, the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the dating of the book. And uh, the book is a powerful uh, treatment of the gospel. In fact, scholars would say that Galatians may be the earliest letter uh, that we have in the entire New Testament, including all the gospels. 
there's a debate whether James or Galatians are the earliest. Some argue that Mark and Matthew are very, very early. But what you can know is this is probably one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. And he wrote it as a consequence of something that happened on his first missionary journey. Now, if you take a look at the map, there's a lot of lines going around there, but the, you can see that the black lines give you an idea of how the mission went. And they started in a place called Antioch of Syria. If you go down on the map, you can see Jerusalem is down on the bottom right, and you go up, and you're in the area of Syria. Antioch of Syria is where the Christians were first so-called. They were first called Christians at Antioch. That was kind of the home base of the early church. From there, they went out. You can see the arrow pointing now to the island of Cyprus, the area of Paphos, and then up into what's now modern-day Turkey. But back in the day, it was called Asia Minor, and it was dominated by the Roman Empire. And you can see many familiar names that, you'll, that will come to your memory, like Ephesus and Troas, and a place right in the center called Pisidia. You'll also notice that Antioch is just above Pisidia, and that location was called Pisidian Antioch to distinguish it from Syrian Antioch. And then the whole region eventually became known as the area of Galatia or the Galatian region. So that's modern-day Turkey, but ancient Asia Minor. So that's where Paul headed on that first missionary journey and began to preach the good news of the gospel to different cities and areas where uh, he was. The recipients of the letter of Galatians make up most likely four churches in the Pisidian Antioch area or in the Galatian area. They would include Pisidian Antioch, a place called Iconium, Lystra, where Paul was stoned and left for dead and then survived, and a place called Derby. If you're taking notes, Galatia means the country of the Gauls. The name is derived from the fierce barbaric tribes of the Gauls or the Celts. They migrated from Gaul or modern France and settled in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Under Roman rule, the original region of Galatia was made part of a larger province by the same name in Central Asia Minor. I mentioned modern-day Turkey. The area encompassed some 250 miles north to south and up to 170 miles east to west. In Paul's day, the name Galatia was used for the original smaller region to the south, and then the whole area eventually became known by that name. On the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas established four churches in the southern part of Galatia, as you look up at the map. And these cities I mentioned, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, we'll, I'll take you to the book of Acts and we'll take a look at how that all happened. And Paul was there ministering to those churches personally. He will mention in chapter 4 that it was because of a bodily ailment that he first went there. And it would seem that Paul had a problem with his eyes. And that may have been a consequence of some sickness that he picked up during arduous travel. It was very difficult to travel uh, on the sea or by land to try to traverse mountains and deal with ancient travel with robbers who were often uh, hiding on main roads ready to just take your money and beat you and left, leave you for dead. So you had to travel with groups and the travel was very difficult. It is within this 
early uh, missionary journey that John Mark leaves uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. He bails on the group. And there are some scholars that believe that John Mark left because he didn't realize how difficult the travel would be or how much rejection would be involved in preaching the gospel. There are others that believe that John Mark and the Apostle Paul had a disagreement and they didn't see eye to eye and that's why John left. But John does walk away and he is later restored back to the Apostle Paul. If you wanted a major theme for the, gospel, the uh, letter to the Galatians, it is about freedom. It's about true freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from thinking that it's the outward keeping of religious rituals that save you or performance that saves you. It's not. You cannot be good enough. The book of Galatians is going to emphatically say that we all fall short of the glory of God, similar to the book of Romans. But it's going to also celebrate the free gift of salvation. If you look ahead for a moment in chapter 3, we'll get a highlight of this in verse 2. Uh, 21 of chapter 3, just to look ahead for a second, Paul, talking about the, the law here, or the Torah, or the Jewish law, says, is the law, Galatians 3.21, contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, God forbid. For if a law had been given, Galatians 3.21, which was able to impart life, then righteousness, or a right standing before God, would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture, or the Bible, has shut up everyone under sin. You can imagine kind of the picture here is a person under the huge boulder weight of the laws and ordinances. 613 commandments and sub-commandments in the law codified in 10 commandments, which we all know we haven't kept, right? We've all lied. We've all lusted, we've all taken God's name in vain, dishonored our parents, hated someone without a cause. The law is summarized in the top 10 from down from the 613 and it's like a weight on each and every person. You can't keep the law, neither can I, and we are all literally under sin. This is the idea of the Greek word to be under a bolder weight that you can't get out from under to be trapped and imprisoned under it, which is the picture that Paul paints in the book of Romans as well. Everyone is shut up under sin, middle of 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe or trust in him. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. Another picture of how the law imprisons under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor or our guide to lead us to Christ, to drive us to the foot of the cross, to the Savior, so that we might be justified, not by works, which your Bible say, but by faith. We must place faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you turn back to chapter 1, Paul will write in Romans 8, 2, and 3, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, Romans 8, 2, and 3, weak as it was through the flesh. The law is not the problem, the flesh is. God did. In sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he, Jesus, condemned sin in the flesh, in his perfect life and sacrificial death and triumph and resurrection. Galatians will take us back to the pure gospel of grace, 
I was reading a writer this week who said that some of us need to go back to where we began. Because some of us started in the Spirit, but we think we're going to be perfected by the law. And that is not the case. And I will tell you, Galatians is a very important letter to understand and know because of the threat of false doctrine. We have had people in the Christian church who have become prey to the cults, world religions, that often tell people in Christian churches, oh, grace is not enough. If those people told you that you're saved by grace and kept by grace and all you have to do is trust in Jesus to be saved, oh, that's a false gospel. Actually, what you need to do, and then they give you their list. And some people have five things and some 10 and 15 and 20. No, you got to do this and you got to be baptized in our baptismal by our pastor with this formula in this city, in this zip code. And I'm not kidding when I say some people are that uh, precise about what you need to do to get saved. Oh, you didn't speak in tongues? Oh, then you're not saved. You know, there's all these add-ons. We've had some cultic movements with cultic tendencies, literally reach into the evangelical Christian church and pull faithful servants out of it, telling them, oh, you're not saved. You haven't haven't done what the Bible requires of you. You can't be sure of your salvation. And they place seeds of doubt within their minds and hearts. And sadly, we've personally watched some people be captivated by that, convinced by it, duped by it, and walk away from the grace of Jesus Christ. That is so sad. And I could bring people up that are in this room today to tell you the sad tale of how because they weren't grounded in what Galatians teaches, got sucked away into a legalistic system that has people walking around with frowns and doubts. That is not where God wants you to be. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Keep standing in your liberty, brethren. Don't let anybody take it away from you. If Jesus Christ did not pay the full ransom price at the cross for your sin and my sin, pray tell, what could I add? What could I bring? The temerity of some people to say to you, no, Jesus Christ's blood doesn't cover all your sins. Uh, That is heresy. That's a lie. That's the devil trying to get people uh, you know, who have trusted in the grace of Christ into a system where they're entangled by the tyranny of trying to keep the law, which they cannot keep. And I just read a few verses to you that should be an open and shut case. But some people were questioning the gospel of Paul when Paul went to these regions and preached. What happened was he would start in synagogues. He would go into a synagogue where he had some authority as a rabbi and he would wait for an opportunity to preach to the people gathered in the Jewish synagogue. This is all throughout the book of Acts. If you've ever studied Acts, they first go into a synagogue and they begin to preach to the Jewish people. And as Paul would do that, there would be many people who responded, Jesus is the Messiah, I believe. But then there would be a group within the synagogue that became angry at Paul, disagreed with Paul. And they followed Paul from town to town and tried to undermine the gospel of grace. And these are the people, and this is a key idea that you need to note, called by scholars the Judaizers. Okay? 
And this is the idea that some people were saying to early converts who were Gentiles, non-Jews, or even proselytes. A proselyte would be a person who went and worshipped in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, non-Jewish, who went through a conversion into Judaism. So there were three camps, and I'll, I'll paint the picture a little bit more as we go on. But there were people, there were Gentiles who worshipped in the synagogue, and they were just simply there, as you call them, God-fearers. There were other uh, non-Jews who were there who converted to Judaism. So they went through a circumcision. They kept the food laws. They kept the Shabbat or the Sabbath. They weren't originally Jewish, but they converted over. They were also in the synagogue. And then there were what we call pure Jewish people from a Jewish mom and dad who worshipped in the synagogue. What you need to realize is that when Paul would go to a region like Lystra or Derby or Iconium, there were Jewish quarters in all of these locations. If you go to Israel today, there are quarters. And, and what, they, what they mean by that is there's a population within a city like Jerusalem that's called the Jewish quarter. And what that means is that there's a Jewish population, most likely with a synagogue there. Since Paul was a Jewish Christian who had a rabbinic training or background, he went into the synagogue as his first preaching platform. He knew he could speak to his people, and he had a burden for the Jewish people, as we see in Romans chapter 9. So he would go into the synagogue where there was familiarity, where there was some level of authority, and that's where he would start. And that's why these Judaizers, in quotes, were so dangerous, because they came behind Paul and they said, no, that gospel of grace is not enough. You need to convert fully over to Judaism and keep the food laws and so forth. I will say to you at the outset that there are many Messianic believers, some, some Jewish believers in Messiah don't like that term, but I'll just use it for the sake of keeping things simple. There are Messianic congregations in our city today. Uh, we have fellowship with them. They keep the Torah. What do I mean by that? They practice the Sabbath on Friday at sunset till Saturday at sundown. They don't eat pork. They uh, honor the seven feasts uh, of Israel. And, uh, but they do that knowing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. I am not making commentary on that. I believe that that's just fine. If, you're, if you have a Jewish heritage and you have a Seder Passover meal at your home every year, don't stop. Don't stop that. There's not evidence that early Jews stopped celebrating the feast. They just knew how they were fulfilled. And they knew the depth of meaning that now uh, was incorporated within those celebrations. For those of you who have ever been to a Seder at, at this church or somewhere else, you know the beauty of seeing the fulfillment in the matzah and in all that uh, is part of a Jewish Seder meal. So this book we have to be careful as evangelical Christians that we, we don't say to Jewish people, oh, you got to stop. No, no. Tonight, you're invited, by the way, to a Messianic congregation on California, uh, Beth Shalom, and they're going to honor tonight the Feast of Tabernacles, and they build shelters, literally tabernacles, in their parking lot. If you want to go tonight, you're invited. It's on California. It's Beth Shalom. Some of you met Rabbi Robert, and they've invited our congregation out. I would encourage you to go. I would encourage you to interact with them and see the shelters that they build. But they know that the Messiah is the fulfillment of that. That's not the issue. The issue is salvation. Please hear me well. The issue is how is one saved? 
Do you have to build a, a shelter and honor the feast to be saved? No, you don't. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one should boast. Keeping Torah, if you have a Jewish background, is just fine. But don't think that by keeping that, that is what saves you. The celebration is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And so the first verse of Galatians, and this is why you guys can already see Pastor Michael's only doing five verses, right? Like, Pastor Michael, we're not surprised at all. This is what you do every Sunday. Okay, I understand. Anyway, <laughs> Paul, an apostle, Galatians 1.1, not sent from men nor through the agency of man. Now, with that backdrop, do you know why that opening statement is so important? Because what were the Judaizers saying about Paul's gospel? Paul made it up. This cannot be what God says. We have, we have the Old Testament. We have our feasts and our food laws. And we have this and we have circumcision given to Abraham in Genesis, in the book of Genesis. And, and this, is, this is important and this is what, what we have to keep. And this Paul, he's out to lunch. I don't know what happened to him on the road to Damascus. I don't know what he saw or where he went. But, and, and yeah, he was trained under Gamaliel and whatever else. But no, no, no. This, this gospel is not from God, brother, sister. Here's what you really need to do. So the opening verse of Galatians is Paul saying, where did his gospel come from? Where did his call as an apostle come from? It didn't come from man. It came from where? It came from God. That's why the opening verse is important. Paul is saying, look, my call, verse 1, I'm an apostle. Literally, I'm one sent out by God on a mission to represent him is the idea. Uh, this apostleship is not from the agency of man, but it came through Jesus Christ, would you notice, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, scholars like to say that the resurrection is the beginning of the new age, if you will, the age of the gospel, the fulfillment of the types and shadows of the Old Testament. But would you notice the order here? Often it will be God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in Paul's letter, but here, letters, but here Jesus Christ and God the Father. This exalted status of Christ, don't just skip over it. Jesus is putting... Uh, Paul is putting Jesus in an exalted place as one with the Father. He is elevating his person. He is, uh, if you will, pointing out his divinity. It came through Jesus Christ, Paul's call. His fall was all part of his call. On the road to Damascus, what was Paul doing? Well, in the... Uh, some of the early writings, you have the idea of what's called a shaliach, I think is how you pronounce it. And they even had these for the Sanhedrin. And they would send people out as a representative of the religious leadership of Israel called the Sanhedrin. And uh, they would send them out on a mission. And if you were a shaliach, you, you were a person who represented the group or an individual. And you could even give a marriage proposal to someone on behalf of the one who sent you. And if you did something wrong and it was within the confines of your mission, you, the person who sent you could be responsible for your behavior. You were like an ambassador, if you will, representing a country or a person. This is the idea of, of an apostle. 
When Paul says, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I'm representing what he did in my life, how he called me, and what he commanded me to preach. My gospel is not from me, it's from him. Would you skip down in chapter 1, verse 11, take a look. I would have you know, brethren, Galatians 1.11, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. It doesn't have human origin. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. My gospel is from a divine source. My apostleship is a divine calling. The content of what I preach is from a divine source. And I know most of you know that when Paul was going out with letters from the chief priests in Acts chapter 9, his intention was to destroy the Christian church. And there he was on the road to Damascus, and he saw a bright light, brighter than the noonday sun, and he got knocked down, knocked off the beast, most likely, that he was riding, whether it was a donkey or a horse. He was knocked to the ground, and a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, that's Paul's name before he becomes what we know Paul, let me just park here for a second. Saul was the name of the first king of Israel. That's who Paul was named after. He was named Saul, right after the first king of the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was one, you know, this idea, I think, of Saul's name, if I recollect correctly, is like uh, called for. And it has this, Saul was... Uh, tall and handsome. He was head and shoulders above the rest. This is the description of the early, the first king of Israel. You know what Paul means? It's a Greek name. Paul means little. <laughs> and there's an application here, and don't, don't apply it to my height. All right, stop that. For those of you who are, Pastor Michael is kind of little. I take that very personally, but anyway. It's all right. But here's the deal. Paul or Saul went from big to little. And in the kingdom of God, if you want to be big, know that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the what? To the humble. If you want to be elevated in God's kingdom, get low. See how low can you go. And then he'll exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You see, Saul had to fall to become this instrument that God would have him to be. And so many of you can understand this because it was through a major moment in your life, a milestone of a near-death experience, a car crash that you shouldn't have survived, something happened to you, you hit a low, you thought you were going to die, you thought your life was over, you thought this would, this would never happen and that would never happen, and he saved you, amen? Uh, you know, when I share these words, this is me. This is where I was. I didn't think I'd ever have a family. I thought I was dust. And I was only in my around 20 years old when these thoughts were coming to me because of the choices that I was making. And I made some deals with God in some of those moments, like, Lord, if you get me out of this one, Lord, if you get me out of this one, 
And he did. And you know, I had no idea what I was in for, folks. <laughs> but for the last three decades, he's been trying to show me to get small so that he can be big in my life. Oh, it's a battle. I want to tell you about a great story. There was a young man who broke into a church in Arkansas. He was high on uh, alcohol and drugs. He did $100,000 worth of vandalism damage to this church. Let's throw up the photos. I want you to see. Uh, these are photos of him in the church. Uh, Frank Sontag shared this story on Friday on KKLA. He's high, uh, drug-induced, and he, he ends up taking the church soundboard and throwing it over the balcony. When he was done in there, he tried to set the church bus on fire. Uh, he caused $100,000 worth of damage. Obviously, he was caught. He was arrested. Let's go to the next photo. Six months later, in the same church, he was baptized. The pastor of the church in Arkansas, and you can look up this uh, later on the internet, uh, went to the court on his behalf and asked for leniency. The young man chose a recovery ranch where he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Six months after he committed this crime, He's being baptized in the same church that he vandalized six months before. That is the grace of God. Amen? In Acts 26, Paul is before King Agrippa and he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Acts 26, 9 through 11. This is just what I did. In Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And many of us who have studied the book of Acts can think of the, the stoning of Stephen when Saul was standing there. He says, King, I punish them often in all the synagogues. This is before Saul, Saul before he became Paul, a Christian. I tried to force the Christians to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Multiple times in the book of Acts, Paul shares his personal testimony and he says to different uh, political leaders, this is, I hated Christians. I hated Christ. I hated the church. My sole goal was to destroy it. And the man who hated Christianity became its chief spokesman and penned two-thirds of the New Testament letters in our Bible. That's grace. Grace, simply defined a beautiful word in Hebrew and Greek. Hebrew is ken, C-H-E-N, ken, you guys, you say it. And in Greek, it's charis or charis. And grace is the goodness of God. It's the benevolence of God. It's unmerited favor. Grace is a word that speaks of God's loving kindness in action. It is embodied in Jesus Christ, the face of grace. It's a wide definition. Grace is not just simply unmerited favor. It's the goodness of God, the benevolence of God, His steadfast has said or loyal love on display, expressed in my life, saving me and graciously keeping me. This is grace. And this is what God does. Some of you may have heard the story that there was a 
Dallas uh, police officer, female police officer, who worked a double shift, and she came home to her apartment building apparently tired and uh, maybe a little bit uh, off because of how much she had worked, and she unfortunately entered an apartment that was one floor above hers. She entered the wrong apartment. She saw a young black man in the apartment. It, it was his apartment. He was simply just watching a football game. And sadly, I don't know what went down there, but she shot and killed this young man. He was 26 years old. And so the story was a big story because it was a white officer killing a young black man, and we know all the stuff that's gone on with that, and, I, and I'm not going to go there for uh, this morning because that's not the essence of why I'm sharing this, but I will tell you this, that uh, what happened next in a courtroom is such an incredible display of grace by the younger brother that I thought it, it would be worth us watching what he did as he speaks in a moment where he can share a personal testimony about what happened, and he addresses the woman who killed his brother. Hopefully we can get the audio. What you or how much you've taken from us, I think you know that. I don't want to say it twice or for the hundredth time what you or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just
Ooh. Do you know how old that young man on the stand was, is? He's 18. His 26-year-old brother was killed. You want to talk about grace? Wow. When Paul's talking about his life, his former life, in verse 13 of Galatians 1, he says, For you have heard... Galatians 1.13, of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism, Galatians 1.14, beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tra traditions. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Over and over again, when Paul shares his testimony, whether it's in Acts or Galatians, he says, this is who I was. I was a violent man. I hated Christians. I hated the church. Why does God use people like Saul, who became Paul? Why does he use people like me and you? Because he's a God of grace. Because he who is forgiven much, loves much. Do you realize how much you've been forgiven? Do you realize the changes that have happened in your life? We don't always go back and see the trail of grace in our lives. It's amazing. Author, pastor, one-time atheist, Lee Strobel, said in a sermon, how can I tell you the difference that God has made in my life? My daughter, Allison, was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus. All she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember I came home one night and kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life. I'm ashamed to think of the times Allison hid in her room to get away from me. Five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. At age five, what was she saying, says Strobel? She never studied the archaeological evidence regarding the truth of the Bible. All she knew was her dad used to be this way 
hard to live with, but more and more her dad has become different. And if that is what God does to people, then Allison said, sign me up. (laughs) Five years old. Daddy used to kick holes in the wall. I don't know what was wrong with him, but something happened to him. This Jesus makes a difference. Amen? Wow. Well, there's much more I could say about the life of Saul, but I figure we should go to verse 2. Paul writes, after he talks about the agency of his calling and, the, and what he preaches, the gospel, he says, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So you have the author and you have the people who are with Paul, probably not secretaries here uh, writing the letter, but more they're with Paul as in kind of missionary uh, partners with him. They're with me. They're sending their greetings, if you will. And he writes to the churches, would you notice, That's plural of Galatia. I mentioned those four churches, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. The word church is ecclesia. It literally means called out, called out of the world, called to God. And Paul says, the brothers who are with me greet you. And I'm writing this letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, I told you I'd take you to the book of Acts and give you a little backdrop. Let's turn there quickly. You got to go a few books back to Acts If you're uh, new to the Bible, the book of Acts records the early happenings of the church after the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus appears, gives final commissioning orders, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and off they go preaching in different areas, starting in Jerusalem. This area of the world I've been telling you about is uh, recorded in Acts chapter 13. So let's take a look. I'll highlight a few verses so we can get the backdrop. Acts 13 one. Now there were at Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch, where they kind of launched out from, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Acts 13.1. There was Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. That's Paul, but he was originally named Saul, as I mentioned. And while they were ministering there, Ministering to the Lord and fasting, Acts 13, 2. The Holy Spirit said, side note, Bible students, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity, not just God's active force. Here he speaks and commissions. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, they sent them away, commissioned them, if you will. Down to verse 13 of Acts 13. Now Paul, now we get his new name. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John or John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, probably about a 100-mile trek, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. That's the southern part of Galatia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. That's what I told you. They started preaching in synagogues. Down to verse 26 of Acts 13. This is the end of the sermon that Paul preaches when he gets an opportunity in the synagogue. He says, brethren, he's speaking now to Jewish people, sons of Abraham's family. I think that's a second set of people 
That's proselytes who have made a formal conversion into Judaism. Brethren, full Jews. Sons of Abraham's family, proselytes converting out of being a Gentile into Judaism. And, third group, those among you who fear God. God fears Gentiles worshiping in the synagogue have not made a full conversion into Judaism. To us, the word of this salvation is sent out. Now, I don't have time to go through the sermon, but I want you to skip all the way down to verse 38. Paul sums up. He preaches the gospel. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Remember, he's in the synagogue. And through him, everyone who believes is freed, literally justified, declared righteous, innocent before God in a legal sense, from all things from which you could not be freed through what? The law of Moses. And then he says, take heed, listen up. Therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. 41, behold, you scoffers. Maybe you saw the faces of some of the people there. Uh, he says, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. That's from Habakkuk 1.5. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Would you guys all write, uh, mark that verse and meet me at the door. And just, that's all I want to hear. Next week, can we hear more, Pastor Michael? That's all. That would make my whole pastoral career right there. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Anyway. Now, when the meeting, 43, of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews... And God-fearing proselytes, remember the descriptions I gave you of those groups, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, some of those who were scoffers, they were filled with jealousy. Maybe this is a picture of the early Judaizers. And began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Maybe they were saying, Jesus is not the Messiah, and you've got to keep the law of Moses to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it, you push it away, you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed, Greek word tasso, to eternal life, believed. F.F. Bruce believes that tasso, appointed, could mean something like inscribed or enrolled in the book of life. But you'll notice, here's human free will. The, the Jewish people here of that one camp pushed away the gospel, rejected it, verse 46, repudiated it, pushed it away. And then we have the sovereignty of God in salvation. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Sovereign election, free will, both in those verses. The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now you can see this is a little backdrop of the book of Galatians, the area where they first preached 
and the controversy that stirred and the reason for the Galatian letter to clarify the gospel. Back to Galatians, we'll have to move very quickly because we're going to also take communion this morning. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 1.3. Again, see the exalted status of Jesus. How could Jesus grant grace and peace to anyone if he is a human or an angel only? He must be divine. He's the source of peace. He and God the Father, verse 3. And just to simply put it, you guys have heard a lot of comments about grace and peace, Siamese twins of the New Testament. But here's a comment from Longenecker. He says, with reference to grace and peace, he says, with particular reference to cause and effect. Grace is the cause. Peace is the effect. Without God's grace in my life, I would never have peace with God or from God. Amen? But because of God's grace, I have peace. I'm freed from the distress of guilt. I'm freed from trying to Think, hopefully I did enough and performed well enough to be right with God. And here is a verse that gives us uh, the essence of what Jesus did. Who gave himself did Jesus, verse 4, Galatians 1. He gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. According to the will of God, our God and Father, we need to remember that it was the Father's will to send the Son. God, the Father, so loved the world that He what? Gave His only Son. Jesus loved me, Galatians 2.20, and gave Himself up for me. Some of you may have heard this story, but let me just briefly tell you what happened. There was a guy named Kevin. Uh, I shared this, I think, on a Wednesday night. He decided to commit suicide and jump off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And so he said, if anyone will come up to me and pay any attention to me, I will reconsider my suicide attempt. He's up on the Golden Gate Bridge where many people have committed suicide and died. And a woman comes up to him and he thinks, ah, this is it. She's going to pay some attention to me. And she asked him if he would take a photo of her. And he said, literally, she was posing for like five minutes, different poses. And he's like, I can't believe this. I'm about to kill myself. And all she wants me to do is take more photos. He leaps over the Golden Gate Bridge. I think he broke his back on impact. He went, obviously, with that big of a fall way underneath the water. And with his arms only, somehow got himself to the top, but was having a tough time keeping himself afloat. The Coast Guard was notified. They came trying to rush over to save him, but he was drowning and he said he, something dark was circling under him and kept pushing him up to the surface when he felt like he was about to drown. He thought, oh great, now I want to live. I'm crying out to God. Save me, God. I'm reconsidering that I want to die. And now a shark's going to eat me. Great. But whatever this thing was, it kept pushing him up to the surface so he could breathe. Finally, the boat got there and he lived. A bystander who was there on top of the bridge, later told Kevin the creature that was underneath him that saved his life. Do you know what it was? It was a sea lion. A sea lion arrived on the scene. God does speak both whale, sea monster, and he can speak to sea lions. And the sea lion popped him up to the surface until the boat could save him. 
You've heard about Jonah and the whale? Well, now you have Kevin and the sea lion. And by the way, you can hear Kevin's testimony when you search him on the internet as well as he goes all over the place telling people about what happened to him. To whom this great deliverance, we'll be talking more about the death of Jesus on the cross, but you'll notice in verse 4, he did it to give himself in sacrifice, to take the wrath of God, to die the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. He laid down his life for me on the cross, gave himself up, yielded himself to all that the cross meant. All the devastation, the wrath, the ugliness, the spitting, the mocking, the suffering of crucifixion, and he did it for me. How can we but say, to end in a doxology, in verse 5, to him to whom be the glory forever and ever. This word is age unto age. May he forever receive the glory from us and all God's people said, amen. You know what you just said? I agree. It is so. Let it be. Yeah. Amen. And by the way, when you say amen, if you say I agree, then I hope you know this Savior. I hope you've met him. I hope you know that you're saved by grace. It's a gift. The rest of our lives after we receive the gift is simply a thank you note. My whole life has become a thank you note to God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Everything in my life, from the initial salvation of the gracious gift that God bestowed and just said, trust me, and I believed in him, to now 30 plus years of walking with him, a you know, unimagined uh, privilege of being in pastoral ministry all by his grace. Not only does his grace save, it strengthens, it keeps us, Amen. Father, thank you for this word. It's the communion elements now are coming around to remind us of this great sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. May you strengthen your people. May you bless them. And my friends, I'm going to ask you just as you are uh, considering what was preached to you and thinking about your standing before God, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let today be your day of salvation. Cry out to him, Jesus, save me. Thank you for your great love. Thank you that you gave yourself up for me. Pray it if it's you. I turn away from my sin. I'm sorry for trying to do it on my own. I can't do it. I surrender. Thank you for loving me. Pray it. Oh, I, I just trust you as my Lord and my Savior, my God, my King. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. If you're a prodigal and you've been away from the grace of God and you've been trying to do it on your own, you've, you've walked away from grace, come home. Come back to grace. It's more than sufficient. He'll give you grace upon grace. He'll give you all you need to live, to be successful, to walk out your faith, to fulfill your ministry. He'll give you what you need. Come home. And Father, for this precious congregation, fighting the good fight of faith, people growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you bless, pour out grace upon grace into each one's life. Thank you that you're such an awesome gift giver. We love you, and in gratitude we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're